this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Ben here. This is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for coming along and listening. It's nice to have you. Let me see if I can get through this without a script as usual. And um, maybe one of these days I'll go back to writing them. I don't know. This week, my guest is the fantastic Naomi Harris. I will introduce Naomi properly in a minute. I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Some of you know what's coming, but keep listening because you never know. First of all, let me say there's some really good guests coming up in the next few weeks. That's something you haven't necessarily heard me say before, although there's always, 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 always good guests coming up. Just that I don't always necessarily know who, but um, got a few things in the pipeline. So let's see what comes of it. In the meantime... I should say that this episode of A Small Voice Podcast is sponsored by the brilliant Charcoal Book Club. And Charcoal Book Club's book of the month this month is by my guest this week, Naomi Harris. The book is Haddon Hall. You're going to hear lots about it because we talk about it during the chat. And I'll talk a little bit more about it in the introduction. So that is a little tie-in with the brilliant Charcoal Book Club, which is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts that brings essential limited edition and hard-to-find photo books to your doorstep. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal Book Club selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors, whether they be long-time enthusiasts with a stock library or novices just beginning to build their collection. Join up as a member and each month you'll receive a new museum quality first edition monograph to add to your shelves, handpicked by Charcoal's team of expert curators and signed by the artist, along with a signed note card and an exclusive print. Sometimes the book of the month will be a classic title every bibliophile should own. Sometimes it'll be a new release from an emerging artist who's poised to make big waves. Other times it will be something like it is this month, which is neither of those things, but a new book by a very established artist, someone who's been out there working for a long time but actually shot those pictures that appear in that book some 20 years ago so that's Naomi and that's Haddon Hall anyway they offer free shipping to the UK Canada and the US and members also get exclusive perks such as signed copies access to rare titles members only pricing in Charcoal's online bookstore and more all of which makes the Charcoal Book Club the best easiest and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography so go to charcoalbookclub.com I never actually say the uh, URL in that um, ad read that I do so it's charcoalbookclub.com have a look don't forget that there's an exclusive fortnightly members only episode of this podcast available on the alternate Wednesdays in the month when there's no free main episode and you can sign up to that for £5 a month at pod.fan to access special subscriber-only content, which includes the previous week's guest answering 20 bonus questions. That's like a whole other extra 30 minutes of material, basically. Catch-ups and check-ins with former guests, all the occasional specials from festivals and events. And you can also show your support and help to fund the ongoing production of the podcast by signing up as a supporter of the show for £3 a month, or if you like, by making a larger periodic, occasional or one-off donation. You can do all that at pod.fan where you can easily find the appropriate page for this podcast. What else? If you need a website, I'll build you one with Squarespace. Um, that's about all you need to know about that. Also, follow me on Instagram. If you do not 
already follow me on Instagram, I'm at Ben Smith Photo. And that is the Instagram account for this podcast. So this is where you'll get all the latest updates on who's coming. And you'll also get the benefit of my guests' uh, takeovers because I always ask each week's guest um, to do an Instagram takeover at Ben Smith Photo on Instagram. And they then get to go mad and post whatever they want. And you'll get to see examples of their work and like Naomi, for instance, is doing it this week. If you want to go over to Instagram and have a look at Naomi's posts, you will find them there. Follow me at Ben Smith Photo on Instagram. So Naomi Harris is a Canadian photographer and artist who seeks out interesting cultural trends to document through her subjects. Personal projects include Haddon Hall, the aforementioned, in which she photographed the last remaining elderly residents of a hotel in South Beach, Miami, Florida. For this work, she received the 2001 International Prize for Young Photojournalism from AGFA Das Bild Forum, an honourable mention for the Yang Goffrey Award, and was a W. Eugene Smith Grant in Humanistic Photography finalist. 20 years later, the work is about to be jointly published in a book, also entitled Haddon Hall by Mass and Void. For her next project, America Swings, Naomi documented the phenomenon of swinging over the course of five years from 2003 to 2008, all over the United States, attending 38 swingers parties in the process. This project was realised in her first monograph, released by Tashin in 2008 as a limited collector's edition. A trade edition was released in 2010, and artist Richard Prince interviewed Naomi for the book, which was edited by Diane Hansen. Naomi then completed EUSA, a reaction to the homogenization of European and American cultures through globalization, for which she visited and photographed American-themed amusement parks in Europe and European-themed towns in America. The project was shortlisted for the Luma Reconte Dummy Book Award in 2016 and ultimately published as a book by Cara in 2018. Other accolades include being awarded a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship in Photography in 2013, a long-term career advancement grant from the Canadian Council in 2012, and participating in the World Press Dupe Swart Masterclass. For her most recent project, iVoyager, Naomi embarked on a 70-day canoe trip along the fur traders route in Ontario, Canada, accompanied by a guide and dressed in 19th century period costume, inspired by the British painter Francis Anne Hopkins, 1838 to 1919. The project includes self-portraiture and landscape photography and forms part of a much wider investigation into feminism, exploring the concepts of power, identity and sexuality. Naomi currently divides her time between Toronto and the USA, where she's studying for an MFA in studio art at the Graduate School of the University of Buffalo in New York State. Whew, okay. So that's the blurb, that's the bio, but um, what's more interesting is to just listen to Naomi speak. We went all over the place in this chat and I enjoyed everywhere we went. It was uh, sometimes serious, sometimes much less so. All kinds of interesting stuff. I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Naomi Harris. People will know Maggie because she, she has appeared in numerous photographs of yours. So anyone who knows your work will go, oh, yeah, I know Maggie. Yeah. Dog. But um, not Mr. Mittens. He's, he's, he's been left out to some extent. He's, I imagine he probably feels a bit hard done by in that respect. Not, <laughs> not getting photographed. So, well, you know, and it's true. But, like, I hate to say this because I just saw a really good book um, that I want to pick up by uh, Fukase that is um, – all about cats, like it's his love for cats. And it's like, I think it is so much harder to photograph cats than dogs. Definitely. Um, I give so much more credit to cat photographers. 
than dog photographers because dogs, you hold a treat and they'll do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and they're like waiting to make you happy. Cats, they're like, whatever, I don't yeah. care. Do- yeah, dogs are just so much more enthusiastic about everything. Cats are just like, you know, that kind of cliche of the kind of inscrutable superior thing. It's just like, yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> you know, like you're that. judged by them. Um, so anyway, it's good to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Should um, we talk about more animals? <laughs> no, nah, we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned you've got a bit of a Groucho Marx attitude. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> what was well, that? Obviously, the reference to, uh, yeah, not wanting to be a member of a club that would have you. I don't know if I don't want to be a member, but no club wants me. <laughs> Remember, really? I think is yeah. I kind of feel like I'm in everything in my life. I'm always on the fringes. Um, do you think? Like, yeah, hmm. I do think so. I mean, whenever there's like hundred women you should know about, I'm never on that list. Interesting. Like, yeah, or even like when there's been like projects like sex photography, like back whatever when I did America Swings. I'm never. I don't know. I'm just. I don't know if I'm not known or. Hmm. I'm just not included. Mm. You, you start to get a little bit of a complex, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and you're not the only one. I mean, I, I I could name a few people who feel very similarly, even though it's not necessarily true. But it's very easy to 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 get into that sort of mindset, especially when you've been like you've been doing it for for a while, and you've you you know you've produced. A lot of work. It's not like you've been kind of, you know, cruising. I mean, you've you've got a lot of books to your name, and you've got many years of experience. I've been following you for ages. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, I was a little bit like I was really surprised when I got your email because I'm like, oh, you know me? Oh, okay, oh, that's yeah. awesome. No, totally. Well, I mean, yes, you know, but I'll, I'll sort of mention it to the to the listeners because. They all know that the Charcoal Book Club is my kind of um, very loyal sponsor on this podcast because they hear their ads every every two weeks. And, um, you know, I'm a, as a kind of fringe benefit of, of that, I'm a, I'm a member of the, of the Charcoal Book Club. And I saw that your forthcoming book is listed as their, as their book of the month. So I will get a copy eventually. And it's called Haddon Hall. We'll talk about it in a minute, but sure. um, that's the context to it. And I thought, ah, I've been waiting for a sort of an excuse to invite Naomi on for a while. So this looks like just the, just the ticket, you know, so that's how it sort of happened. It's funny because um, I actually, an ad agency from the UK reached out to me. I'm not going to make any big deal of it because I don't know if it'll happen but like this just this week a couple of days ago I got an email like what's your availability in a couple of weeks and it's like I haven't done a real shoot in three or four years I haven't done any advertising in mm. like I don't need at least over a decade so I'm so curious as to why maybe the guy's a member of the charcoal photo book club mm-hmm. and that's how he like because I'm like why are they reaching out to me now because you know <laughs> But, you know, just to just to explore this further, because I think this is a really interesting kind of vein to, to mine a little bit. Um, and, it, and it even ties into some of the, the work that you've been doing lately. You have got like a lot of Instagram followers, for instance. You've got an enviable number of Instagram fo- fo- okay. followers. You're, you're in the 50,000 plus club, you know. Right. But lots of people would. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. Go on. Go I, on. yeah, I had a friend who used to work at Instagram and they remember back early days of Instagram, they had the who to follow list. Like when you yeah. first came on, I was put on that list for two weeks. Right. I went from 3,500 followers to like 86,000 followers. And then 
you know, with t- and then they took me off. And then, like, you know, within a few weeks, it dropped back down to, like, 75. And now it's dropped back. Like, it's... Right, right. But a oh, wow. good portion of those people... And this is, like, you know, this is all about the whole optics of social media and everything and popularity contests. It looks... You said it's enviable. I, I must have so many... Fo- I'm lucky if I break 350 on... As the amount of likes. So like mm-hmm. my engagement is super low actually compared to, I have friends who have like 2000 followers and they get 700 likes on a picture. I'd yeah. much rather have that than yeah, what yeah. I have. That's I really found a bunch of bots. I got bots and children and I don't know who's randoms. <laughs> and the thing is, if you go to try to clean that out, Instagram flags you for too much activity. You, you, you can't clean it out. And yet, so you're kind of stuck in this weird limbo of not even knowing what your engagement is. Mm. I have no idea who I'm reaching to. And, th- yeah. and that's the that's the weird side effect of the whole um, social media thing. It's, mm. it's no, I that's, should keep that's quiet a- and let people think I have 50,000 <laughs> yeah. odd followers. Well, you do. Now. But like you say, you know, it's a really interesting a kind of point in a way because it is about, you know, are, are those, yeah, how kind of – this this concept I'm always going on about um, called a thousand true fans, which is uh, sort of um, pr- you know kind of proposed by this bloke called Kevin Kelly, which is essentially about you know the, in the internet age, if you have a, th- if a thousand true fans as a creative person, you know you can basically make a living and sell your stuff and a true fan is basically someone who will buy anything that you do so like you know your thousand true fans like whenever you get a new book they're gonna get it and you know that's a really interesting idea but it's actually remarkably difficult to to have that many people who you know are are true fans and like you say you might have thousands of instagram followers but they're not really followers or they're not really fans you know you know yeah it's and then uh, i'm not even sure like about the whole algorithm thing like you know if you don't go on a lot and you don't comment a lot, you don't engage with your audience, your algorithms apparently really go kaput. And I got more important things to do than be on Instagram. Oh, God, yeah. Eight hours of my working or like waking day. So I go on every few days, maybe. Mm. And I just, you know, I'm not on it that much. So I have affected my own algorithms because I don't have the time to be on it so much mm, yeah no and, and and someone asked me this recently you know like it is now a genuine question like is it worth my investing my time and energy into doing this you know as a kind of genuine part of my ob- obligation as a sort of you know self-employed person essentially because you know there are benefits to it and it is i couldn't bear it i mean i think i'd go nuts but you know for some people it is worth doing because if you say for instance have a book you want to self-publish and you're trying to raise money uh, on Kickstarter, which is something you've yeah. had experience of, you know, then that's where it starts to come into play, having that many, you know, that many followers. And, and it is a genuine kind of metric now of your chances of, you know, funding a book, for instance. Well, I'll say this, going back to the Kickstarter thing, when I did my Kickstarter in, I guess it was 2017, because the book came out in 2018. Is that correct? I can't mm-hmm. even remember. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I guess that's right. It was different. The algorithms were different. You, Your reach was better. Now, Facebook and Instagram want you to make paid postings. Like, yeah. you have to actually... And it wasn't that way back then. Or, like, it was, but it wasn't, like... 
so intense that like, you know, when you made a post on Instagram, it didn't say, do you want to make this, you know, a, a paid post and then you'll get more um, reach. And I think if I was to do a Kickstarter today, I would not have nearly the amount of success as I did back then. Yeah. Um, just because the, the, the fake, I mean, Instagram is Facebook, that Facebook wants you to pay to get, um, your message across mm. rather like, it's interesting. I did myself last year. I have to do, I'm in school right now. I'm doing my MFA at uh, the university at Buffalo and we had to do service hours. Um, so in the first session, they had me sit on Zoom in case anybody had any questions for 10 hours a week and no one came. And I'm like, this is the biggest waste of time. I'm sitting in front of a computer with no one showing up. <laughs> so I said, can I do a photo book club? And they're like, yeah, sure, do that. And it was great. I had a lot of people come. Not one of them was a student from University of Buffalo, um, but I had a lot of other people. I had, And I had my regulars, and it was a lot of fun because it was super casual. Like, it wasn't these hoity-toity type of things, like, where people are trying to sound really smart, and, and it's just them blathering away. Like, it was more a conversation. And also the audience, since it was a Zoom, they were able to – chime in either through the chat or we had it like open mic if you want to ask a question you can unmute yourself and ask a question like that's it was supposed to be feel more like a salon like where mm -hmm. you know you're in a, like a real book club where you're in a room with other people and um the first post i put up on facebook i had so many like the interaction was really big like i announced the book club and then evermore every post i got very little traction and i think it was that facebook the first post was a post mm. the next post they realized oh you're trying to promote something eh, you got to yeah. pay for that yeah. so it's really hard to reach people today and and i was a really big fan of of um Kickstarter, and I still am, but I think you need to have an email list, and you have to mm. literally email people directly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I, I've, I'm quite fortunate to have built that with the podcast, but um, it's still not that many people. But yeah, I mean, not to we don't want to kind of turn this into talk about uh, sure. social media, but but um, Facebook has become increasingly frustrating. I I, I think I'm I'm probably going to be out of there pretty soon. I mean, I I stay on there because I want to let people know who's on the podcast every two weeks. That's basically my only real reason for doing it. And like you say, it's so frustrating. Like I, I'll, I'll let people know who's on the podcast now. And like 10 people will, will have seen it. And yeah. I'm like, what? and then I'll put a crappy mugshot of myself up there. And, uh, but then loads of people have seen that. And it's like, how does it know? Like, anyway, it does know, right? The it first one's know. just, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's a picture of me. And the second one is a promotional post of some sort. Anyway, yeah, it's, yeah, it's frustrating. But also, I'll tell you this much. So I'm teaching like, you know, kids in their late teens, early twenties, not one of my students, and I only have 11 students in my class. Not one of them is on Facebook. Mm. Yeah, no, so, exactly. they're not. I don't know. We, we got to get on TikTok apparently. Yeah, the younger generation are, are just a, are totally, um, you know, eschewing it. And we're, yeah, our generation, probably the main ones who are using it now, and maybe, yeah, a bit younger. But are you, so you're doing your MFA in what, just photography? I'm actually not doing any photography for my oh, MFA. Oh, really? Yeah, it's studio arts. Well, because I've been a photographer for, what, uh, 20 plus years? I yeah, mean, exactly. when I started Haddon Hall, it was 1999. I went to school at... Um, ICP over uh, in New York City. Mm. Like I, I, I basically was a printmaker. 
I, I studied printmaking in university here in Toronto, and then I went to New York to do photography because, like, I, <laughs> this is going to age me. I um, a lot of my printmaking was photo based, but I didn't want to uh, like it, it, you, it was before the days of Google. So there was no <laughs> internet yeah, to source images off of. So I would find my pictures in books and magazines. And if I, I decided, you know what, if you can't find the picture that you're looking for, you might as well uh, learn how to take pictures so you can make your own picture. And that's how I actually got into photography. Right. So I was old. I was like 22, 23, the first that's time. That's not old. No, but that- in terms of like when you talk to a lot of photographers, aren't they yeah. like, my dad gave me a camera when yeah, I was yeah. eight. Like, I yeah. didn't. And it wasn't my first love. But then I went to Europe that summer and I tooted around for like three weeks and I came back with my black and white Tri-X film and I developed it and I saw the pictures. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. Right. So, so was it, uh, it was really like that. It was a bit of a kind of epiphany. It was an accident. It was an, I fell into photography as an accident. But your, your reaction to it was just instinctive that you realized you've stumbled upon something that you were really gonna sort of love or was it am I being am I romanticizing that moment but what it was wasn't that I loved photography necessarily I loved the people I had access to and I loved that all of a sudden I could I mean I'm a schmoozy person anyway but I loved that all of a sudden I had an excuse to talk to people and uh yeah that was really it it was really about getting into people's lives and the camera back then I don't think it's the same today but back then you had a camera it afforded you it allowed you this this interaction with people who may otherwise not have wanted to yeah. speak with you yeah so that was the real you know catch of it all the the real um, lure if you will but uh yeah so but getting back to doing my MFA um I mean I I haven't done printmaking since the 90s like late 90s like 97 and that's what I'm trying to get back into. I'm trying to take my practice from being solely photo based. Like I still want to make my own pictures, and I still also want to use, like, go back and try to use vernacular, like you know, um, found photos as well. But um, get back to where I once was, and get back to, uh, or, or or move my process to being more about like installation and not just photograph framed on a wall I'm really much more interested in seeing what I can do like you know having um other aspects and other materials and other mediums in the final product so like for example I mean we're much slower here on our side of the pond like in Canada and um and in the United States as far as how we exhibit work but like I can remember going to foam in Amsterdam, like, you know, it's been a while since I've been to Europe since pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can remember the first time I went to foam was probably five, six years ago and being blown away by how they actually exhibited photography. Cause it wasn't just prints on walls and frames. It was, I mean, I remember seeing Eric Kessel's exhibition where it was just pictures on the floor in a, in a heap. And I loved it. I love that. It's like, it's so much more about the concept than um, and, and the execution of that concept. That's why I like I love Thomas Maylinder's work. It is always photo based, but it's not stodgy. 
And that's where I'm trying to move my practices to be ultimately. And I, uh, my love of books, I always will do books and, and um, I definitely mm -hmm. react to that. But I definitely think there's um, photography has been evolving and will continue to evolve. So it's not just, um, you know, this, this uh, tried and true method of showing it. Well, you sort of joked or half joked about wanting to be a real artist again. Is that, that was kind of the essence of it, that you maybe have reached a, a point of, of, you know, transition in some way? Well, it's also like getting back to when I said, like, you know, a camera um, gave you the opportunity to, um, to, to, to photograph people that would otherwise, otherwise not want to, to or may, you may not engage with. Today, everyone has a camera. It's all, the, it's all in their phones. And frankly, I, I give total props to people who are, call themselves street photographers and are able to make images on the, you know, doing street photography today. Not that I was a street photographer, but just this idea that, like, I've kind of stopped taking on projects that aren't more um, either studio-based or very constructed because I find that nobody does anything anymore. Like you look at Winogrand's pictures and, you know, there's people walking down the street holding a baby monkey. There's women with, you know, ice cream cones. It's just beautiful moments. But now the, or like I've been watching a lot of movies from the seventies lately and everyone's just walking down the street and doing things. Whereas today, if you were to shoot that same scene in a movie, it would be people on their telephones yeah. or, mobile phones, I should say. Yeah, um, and I find that really sad that we don't know how to be bored. We don't, and I'm not saying I'm better. I do the exact same thing, but it's just like, I think in it's affected us that we're, we're disconnected. And at the same time, it's just visually boring. Yeah, yeah. So that's Definitely. another reason to, to start doing more conceptual projects because I can control it. Mm, mm. Yeah. It's interesting talking about this stuff because you mentioned earlier in passing that you hadn't done any commissioned work for a while. And, you know, you're sort of, I feel like you're kind of an avatar for a lot of us in a way that you are incredibly experienced. You've been working, you know, as a, as a jobbing commission photographer for 20 years. And, you know, I've heard you sort of mention that in a way, you know, <laughs> you're four, let's say you're 40 something, but you're not, you're, you're still, you know, you're like in your prime in a way as a, as a photographer because of the aforementioned experience. But yet it seems like maybe there's a drop off in, you know, the amount of work that you're being offered and that, you know, essentially you're dealing with, well, not only perhaps a gender issue, which we can talk about. Thank you for, as a, thank you for recognizing that. Yeah, of course. No, of course. I always <laughs> try to, um, but as as a female photographer, but also kind of an ageism thing, and oh my god, have you, you been know, like, reading up on my, my current work? <laughs> like, well, that's exactly it's the it's the double blow is, of of gender disparity and ageism. Exactly, it, Naomi, it's all been thought through here. I am going to try and segue into your current project because yeah, it seems to me that there's a fantastic kind of you know there's a, there's a contemporary you know take on 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 it and the way that you've kind of used a historical kind of narrative to to talk about this stuff is really interesting but you know yeah you talked about um maybe even getting a proper job at some point i don't know i don't know if that's still a, a project that you're thinking of pursuing but 
I, I remember that I was in the same position exactly the same time as you about 10 years ago. I'm a lot, I'm, you know, a lot older than you, but I, you know, realized that, you know, picture editors, what in a way it's difficult for them because they're trying to give the n new generation a kind of chance to break in, right? They're trying to give them their opportunities and like something's got to give, right? So even though you're, you're experienced, do you, how do you feel about that? Just t talk about that a little bit, maybe. I'll, I'll let you... I mean, there's so many ways we can go about this. I mean, first of all, there used to be, and I think it, part of it is that a lot of publications and a lot of magazines have gotten rid of their older and more experienced photo editors because they cost more. And so they have all these younger people. And I'm not saying there's nothing, there's anything wrong with a young photo editor. Some are really wonderful, but they may not have that Rolodex and they may also not have that knowledge. But at the same time, they, the, and I think this goes, this holds true for so many things about young people. And this is going to sound awful, but they just don't know. They don't, and, and they don't respect the um they don't respect older people so i think in the you know even 10 15 years ago you still had um like i think william klein was still working like 10 15 years ago you had people who they'd have to be wheeled <laughs> essentially to their to their shoots but they you know you still wanted these visions of these these people were visionary these photographers and you didn't say oh they're in their 70s oh they're in their 80s let's not work with them i mean irving penn worked till he was like you know so many photographers worked to the day they died helmet newton was on a shoot he had a heart attack and died. Mm -hmm. but that's not the way it seems to be anymore mm -hmm. um we don't admire the longevity of of people it's like and i do believe in bringing in new voices younger voices people of color um variety of gender identifications but like at the same time you can't do that at the cost of other people it's not that's what's not fair it's mm. like you i think there's room for everybody but also there's a hell of a lot more photographers now than there ever were um, part of it being the ease of, of uh, being able to get a DSLR versus when it was film, etc. So um, there's that side of things. I mean, I think I have definitely, I, I'm in that dreaded middle-aged, <laughs> I'm 48, by the way. Um, I'm not supposed to talk about my age because I should say I'm 38 and, <laughs> and then I'll, I'll be better off. But, um, you know, being for, in your a middle-aged I'm mid-career. These are all the kind of the kisses of death. So, like, I can either, you know, like that kitten in the hang in their poster, like claw in and ride it out and just keep doing my work, which most female artists, they, you know, you've got that young age where you're a rising star, you're part of my French fuckable and um, <laughs> you know, you're you're you know, you're you're sought after, and then you kind of you don't even realize it's happening, and then it just kind of happens overnight. You, you know, your your jowls are setting in, and, and and you're setting out. And then if you could just hold on until you're like in your seventies and eighties, and and you're yayoi kusama cute or something, then you might be welcome back into the fold, I suppose. Um, and that's kind of what I'm hoping for. But I mean, as far as other jobs, yeah, I've thought about it. I, I also think artists in general like we have this fantasy that uh we need to be making work 
or, or making our income solely off of making art and we have to be making art full time. I think that's wonderful if you can do it. But like the people who could really do that sort of thing are people who have huge trust funds or family money or married mm -hmm. into money. I'll always regret that I didn't marry into money because it's certainly not coming from my family. <laughs> anyway, that's aside. Um, the idea that uh, you need to, to make your income solely out of your art practice, I, don't, I think that's unrealistic. And I mean, I have a friend who's a photographer and he... Um, is also an ER doctor. So mm. he's able to, and he's a published photographer. He did a wonderful book last year with care. Um, he is able to not have that stress of how do I make my mortgage? How do I pay my rent? How do I get put food on the table? Because he has a real job and he knows he has a paycheck coming. Um, I think that is, and I think that's great. That's why people go into teaching and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm actually it's, thinking. How, you know, it's very hard. Sorry to interrupt, but it's yeah. it, it's very hard to um, to concentrate on 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 making art if you're worrying about paying the freaking bills. I mean, you know, how can you it, it, the, the making of the art, although it might be essential to your sort of well being or your kind of sense of who you are, can seem trivial when you don't know how you're going to pay the mortgage. I mean, you know, it's it's simple a matter of of you know sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a way. You know. Totally. I mean, I'm doing my MFA now. I'm only doing it because um, graciously UB gave me a scholarship, so I'm not paying for my education. So I'm not going into debt. I was supposed to go, I mean, <laughs> I was supposed to go to grad school in Germany. I was accepted to HFBK where Oliver, you know, Shannon and Broomberg are the, um, Broomberg, Shannon, they were the uh, heads of the department and I was accepted and I was going to go. And then my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer and we mm -hmm. didn't know if it had metastasized because they found other cancers. I mean, it actually was individual cancer. So that was actually a good thing. But I, I couldn't go to Germany knowing my dad was sick and I didn't know how long he had. It ended up, I could have gone, I would have been graduated. And then when I, because the school in Germany, it's free, free tuition. And I would have been in Europe. And it was kind of like a dream of mine to come to Europe. Anyway, dreams sometimes are broken. Fast forward, I got accepted to UB. They, they asked me to, to come and, and study there. And so great, I'm not paying for it. It's Buffalo's only about it, you know, an hour 45 minute drive from Toronto. So I could go back and forth if my parents need me. I mean, this is pre pandemic, and then mm. the pandemic happened. And so last year, I did my first year remote, fully remote. And then what does dad do? He dies the first week of school. And it's like, come on, Jerry. So like, it's just this, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've just gone off on a bit of a tangent. But no, um, okay. it's sort of like, Things don't go as planned, I guess, is part of it. But hmm. while I am doing school, the idea is when I come out, if I could find a teaching job, that would be marvelous. But also I – and through, you know, <laughs> getting back to also the idea of like you, you used to work a lot and, and um, you're not working so much. Part of that is you are only as good as your last job. I mean, we always say that in, in our industry, mm -hmm. you're as good as your last job. What was my last job years ago? What, but also like, you know, where I've been assigned to do real photography, but also I am as good as my last job. What am I doing right now? I'm a caregiver. 
I moved back home in 2018 from Los Angeles. Like, this is the backstory that people don't know. I didn't stop working. I had a higher calling, if you will, or like, you know, I had more responsibilities. I needed to come home. My mom, my dad fell and broke his hip on a, seven hours into a road trip with me. My dad decided to um, relieve himself against a tree, fell in a, down a, a drainage oh, ditch no. and broke his hip. Oh, so, God. yeah, I mean, like, life luck, right? And so yeah. my mom, I didn't want to leave her alone with my dad. So I moved back home to help my mom with dealing with my dad. And then in May of 2019, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. So I've been a caregiver for the mm. last several years. People don't know that. People just think you're not working. Mm-hmm. I'm working. I'm just yeah. working in a different way. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you've had quite an un- quite unlucky um, last couple of years, what with the pandemic and then, you know, your dad dying as well and your mom being sick. Wow. But you still seem but to you persevere. You, yeah. you have to keep going. Of course. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about iVoyager and the way that that project sort of t- sort of ties into some of these themes that we've been talking about, because it's, um, I guess, your latest thing or it's ongoing or I don't know what, quite where you are with it. I mean, I think the, the work is finished, is it? More or less. I'm trying to make a video piece to go with it because I'm trying to expand. And mm. I've actually, last year, I did a script writing class at UB. So I have a script nearly uh, finalized and so then the question is um making the video i was supposed to exhibit the work at the thunder bay art gallery which is where i ended the project um here in ontario but then it was supposed to go up for april 2020 (laughs) on march 13th i had to make the decision to tell the printers to either print the prints or not and i decided not to because there was this thing going on in italy and germany and China and I'm I'm like it's here it's it's and then three and the gallery's like don't worry about it you're going to close in Toronto but we're going to be fine we're up north uh three days later the whole country was closed down so um yeah like it's really funny I I I often compare myself to Charlie Brown where he has always a cloud over his head and like I have real good brushes with luck but then something always Monkey wrenches always tossed into it. Um, so anyway, we decided to, obviously, the, the show was postponed. Um, it was supposed to happen this year, uh, so June 2021. We in Ontario had the longest lockdown in the world, um, almost, well, specifically Toronto, nearly nine months in the third wave. People don't get, like, why we've been so shell-shocked over here. Um, and so then now the show's... Uh, supposed to happen july 2022 Mm. so yeah the project is not necessarily ongoing it's just that it's the project that never wants to end because it never sees the light of day i also do want to do a book for it too Mm -hmm. so i I am still working on a book it's sort of based around uh, a trip that you did but maybe you could just set it up and tell us sort of in in a in a nutshell what the project is so people can get a sense of it so um, in the summer of 2018, thanks to a very generous grant from the Canada Council, um, I did a 70-day canoe trip um, starting Lachine, Quebec, and ending in Thunder Bay, Ontario. I didn't do the entire route because we did have a few um, car ferries of the canoe from one place to another. But I did a, a, I canoed a... I think almost a thousand kilometers um, 
for, uh, over the course of 70 days with um, one other person. I had a guide and I was going as um, in the guise of British painter Frances Ann Hopkins, who would have, could, she went on three canoe trips herself with her husband and the Voyagers. Her husband worked for the Hudson's Bay Company in the, and this would have been in the 1860s. And she um, accompanied them on, I mean, it was for her, it was joy rides. It was like more, um, they, they weren't actually transporting furs at the time, but it was along the fur trade route. So I recreated her, the, the, the fur traders route, um, wearing the same dress um, every day. And, um, yeah, taking pictures of landscapes, which is not my forte. No, I was going to say, that's a bit of a departure for you for a start. Did you enjoy yeah. that? Uh, yes and no. I would wish I was better at doing landscapes. I look at other people. Like, I can remember being in Las Vegas um, in 2003, I guess, with my friend Stacy Marifar. And she was photographing, like, we're, we were there for a few weeks, um, staying at a friend of her family's um, house that they had there, and just photographing things in Las Vegas. And we would drive around, and she was photographing. We were, like, out in the desert more where they were building houses and I'm like what is she photographing like I didn't understand and then I see her pictures I'm like oh wow this is great I don't see I see people people is my first thing mm -hmm. and I wish I could see better in in terms of nature and landscapes well I think I'm getting better but mm. um it's not what I've you know, but, but for the story, and this is something I've learned through making photo books, it can't always be people. You need to have the, the pauses, the breaks, the setting atmosphere. So I'm trying to do more of that, more details in my, my projects and mm. more establishing shots, that kind of thing. Mm -mm. So like, this seems like probably the most personal project you've done in a way because of some of these kind of themes that we already introduced. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, yeah, you, you're, photographing yourself because there's no one else around and so you're you're the kind of protagonist or you're or Frances Ann Hopkins is the protagonist and you are sort of playing her in a way but um yeah it does have this kind of contemporary relevance because I mean clearly for a woman in those days to be doing what she was doing that would have been well, I don't yeah. know how, how would it, how would it have been viewed let me give let me give you a little bit of more background of of who Frances Ann Hopkins was. Yeah. I mean, she's one of yours, not mine, yeah. but she, she, her biggest body of work was made in Canada and her, her, uh, I mean, but this is the Victorian age. Her paintings are simply signed F A H. Why? Because the Royal Academy would not have exhibited her if they knew she was a woman. Mm. So she chose anonymity over the, the, the she, it was, more um, beneficial to her to be shown in the Royal Academy by going like by, by being unknown rather than signing her, her birth name, Frances Ann Hopkins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually it would be Bishi, but um, anyway, the, the, the idea that she, she would, she act and that was not uncommon. Many, many women in the Victorian age simply signed their initials because. Of course. Oh, and, and famous female novelists who, you know, took took pen names for, for the same reason. I mean, you know, it would not have been published. Uh, if and they, that's 
that's a horrible statement of where society was like, oh, she's marvelous, but she's a woman, so we can't show her work. <laughs> so she is the only person who actually, I mean, it was before photography, 1860s, or I mean, you wouldn't have anyone making daguerreotypes out there. But so she, her painting, she did sketches on these canoe trips. And then when she returned to England, made these large scale uh, oil paintings, which is also like that genre of, of um, painting, like landscape, large scale oil painting was primarily done by men. So here she is tackling um, something that, that women didn't do. And if, she, if it wasn't for her, we would never have known what the fur trade, like what could, traveling by canoe on the rivers or Lake Superior looked like. And, and it's all thanks to her. Mm -hmm. And she went unknown for many years. Like people did, it was just like the, the work was attributed to anonymous until um, this woman, Janet Clark, who's a uh, curator, who's actually helping with curating my show, uh, researched about her and did um, an exhibition in the nineties of her work, um, finally giving her voice. And so I've done many road trips. I've, um, done various projects, but I wanted to do, the canoe is so important to Canada and it's, I mean, it's uh, obviously the, the. Um, I don't want to get too much into colonialism, but you know, you have to address the fact that the fur trade is basically what Canada is built on. And it was the settlers coming to Canada using the canoe, which was, you know, native mode of transportation, but that's how they were able to go get furs to bring it back to make hats in um, beaver pelt hats for Europe. So I really wanted to do a project about that, like, you know, traveling by canoe. And then it, I didn't set out to to go on Francis Ann Hopkins' trip. But when I saw these paintings and I started doing research as to who made the paintings, that's when I discovered that it was this woman and uh, that she was, you know, only recently um, – came to be known that the paintings came to be attributed to her. And I'm like, that's the story. It's not really about following the fur trader route. It's following in her footsteps. And in the last 150 years, okay, yeah, I can sign my work, Naomi Harris. I would probably be better off signing it NSH as opposed to, or just N Harris. Like, is it a man? Is it a woman? I don't know. Um, I know another photographer that she did that. Her, her last name is, uh, Jerome Ferraro. So she goes by R. Jerome Ferraro, um, even though her first name's Rachel. And, mm. you know, I, I, I don't know if that was actively done to be like, you know, uh, question what the gender is. But, you know, if she did it that way, I'd give her huge props because it was a very smart move. Mm. Um, but the idea that, uh, yeah, I can sign my work, but Will I be exhibited? I mean, look at what the Gorilla Girls did. Like with the the fact it ha has things changed since the eighties when they first brought to the attention that um, only like you know five percent of what's collected is women. Mm. Yeah, that's a pretty shocking statistic. Yeah, and I mean, you look at exhibitions, and it's almost all men. The price of men's work is much higher than the you know they receive way more. Um, the, the value of their work is considered so much more than women. Yeah, there's a handful of women like, God, love you, Cindy Sherman. But, you know, the idea that we can all be Cindy Shermans is mm. preposterous. 
it's it has not changed much in the last 150 years mm -hmm. to be a woman a female artist yeah that's the inevitable but somewhat depressing conclusion well, look, look, let's move on because there's so much to talk about, I think, and um, people can... You need to reel me in. I'm like a, a basket full of kittens and I'll uh, just go everywhere. You no, need to no, gather I love me that. up. No, I love that. Um, um, it's, it's very welcome because, um, you know, it's yeah, that's what you're here for. Um, but, you know, you, people can see the, the, the project, uh, at least, you know, get a flavor of it on your website, NaomiHarris.com. So it's up there and, uh, yeah, people can, can have a look for themselves. Now, Haddon Hall, which is going to be your, well, well, it's about to come out, actually. It's sort of, um, you know, imminent. It's at Unseen right now. The, right. So the Unseen Book Fair is happening at the at this moment, and uh, yeah. Void has it there. So, yeah, I guess it's out today. Cool. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's a good time. But, um, and it's, you know, it was the kind of um, catalyst, in a way, for me f finally uh, pinging you an email. But um, I didn't realize on first glance that this is work that you did 20 years ago I thought oh you know of course I, I hadn't seen it um and um then then I of course in looking into it realized oh I see so it's just the book's taken 20 years to uh, come to fruition have you been thinking for a very long time that ultimately you'd like to put that old you know that old work in a book or or did it sort of you know happen by accident how did it come about do you remember I mentioned I have a cloud over my head? Yeah. Although you always look like a happy and cheerful person. And you're always, one of the reasons I like following you on social media because you're funny. And I always think, oh, Naomi's like, looks like a right, a right laugh. I'd love to like, you know, she'd be a great person to kind of go for a beer with because you're just like, yeah, you're very cheerful. And I, I'm, maybe that's because you've got, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the other side of having the cloud over your head. I know what that's like, but sorry, I've interrupted. So well, please carry on. I don't drink alcohol, but I will gladly go for a bitters and soda with you. Right. Okay. I'll um, drink the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> no. So getting back to that cloud, um, I was a finalist for the Eugene Smith Award. I won the uh, Young Photojournalist Award from Dust Build Forum and AGFA, which was a really wonderful award back in the day. They stopped doing it. I think I may have been the last one. Maybe there was one more after me. And um, the project, like that's how I landed my first work at the New York Times Magazine was through this project. Mm. But uh, I was in talks with um, Aperture. And then a little thing called nine eleven happened. Oh God, yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> so, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I, I'm starting you know, to get it. <laughs> yes, like you know how in um, Forrest Gump, he's always at these things, but like kind of, uh, I am too. But it's just the opposite. I mean, I'll tell you about America Swings later, and oh, the yeah. good luck I had with that one. Um, but yeah, so the thing is, uh, we. I mean, there was no contract signed or anything, but they were had. I had submitted my portfolio and communication had started and then it went cold and they're like, listen, we can't do anything that's not 9-11 related. Okay, I get it. However, at the time, the people were still alive in the book. Um, I mean, some of them have passed away. And my approach to the project was more a day in the life. And I was looking at it more from a journalistic perspective because I was working for publications as well. So then... You know, a few years afterwards, the work feels old, so you put it away. And right. then I had started photographing, actually, for my book, America Swings. So I, um, you know, Haddon Hall was put away. Mm. And 10 years passed, 15 years passed. And 
when it was about 18 years, I'm like, you know what, this book should come out for the 20th anniversary. And I, um, I had already done a book with um, book designer Tun van der Heiden, and I had done a uh, book design workshop with him in New York City for my, my book EUSA. And he does these workshops with Yumi Goto in Tokyo. I don't know if you know either of them or the yeah, bookshop. I don't workshop. know them personally, but I certainly know both of their names and I'm, I'm very much aware of them. So have you been to Japan? I have, yeah. I went I went a few years ago, actually. Oh, what, where? Just before um, before COVID hit, I managed to get that trip um, under my belt. And um, weirdly, I was on a... It's a long story, but I was on a cruise ship oh, in wow. Japan. Um, wait, wait, wait. Was that when that other cruise ship couldn't get off? No, like, so I, that was September 20, oh, okay. 2019. Okay. So, yeah, got in under the wire so, before that industry went to hell. But that was, a, I was, I was speaking. It was funny. It was, yeah, it was interesting. Um, a thing that a bunch of photographers that I, I know actually got an opportunity to do. But yeah, I went, that was fantastic to go to Japan. But yeah, go on. You were talking about this workshop. But Japan, Japan is the most magical place on the planet. I absolutely fell in love with the place completely, yeah, like, like very instantly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, and what was so wonderful about Japan? The first time I went was in 2015 when I married myself. Um, oh yeah, it's another story. <laughs> um, I went to things and places where I felt like a child because I saw things I'd never seen before. And when you're in your forties, you feel like you've done it all or like, not that you've, obviously there's a lot more in the world that you haven't seen, but like the way things are done in Japan was so unique and special that it just made me so excited because you can get jaded as you get older. And that's, so when I heard Tun, I, t I mentioned to him that I, I wanted to do Haddon Hall and he's like, you should look into the, the, the book dummy workshop that's done at the Remainders Photography Stronghold um, that Yumi Goto puts on and you have to apply for it because they want to, it, it is, uh, it's not first come first serve. They want to make sure that the people have a project that's well underway and it's, it's because there's 12 students at the workshop. So, and this, I, I recommend it. Look, I'm speaking on behalf of, of the, the, the Remainders Photography Stronghold workshop. However, there's other wonderful workshops out there. I think if you are a young, or not even young, I wasn't young. If you're a photographer and you want to put a book together, there's something about learning through the eyes of 11 other participants. There were people like first you start off and you're putting your work up on the wall. And I'm like, oh, that project kind of blows. And then that book ended up being the best book of all our books. Mm -mm -mm. So it's about, it, it just goes to show that it's like all about how you edit and sequence. And it's not all the bells and whistles. And yes, the Japanese love to do a lot of hand bound and fold outs and stuff like that. And Yumi has a reputation of having her look, whatever. But I still feel that um, you can really learn from the perspective of others, whether they give you opinions or not on your work. That's another story. But, you know, there is a lot of, in within the group, a lot of helping each other. And like, what if you did that? And, you know, it's not insular when you're at the workshop. You're really working as a group, each of you building your own book. And, um, yeah, so it was time. It was time to put this book together. I went to Japan in 2018 with Haddon Hall material. But what was really wonderful was, you know, they also have you bring your A-selects, bring your Bs, bring your Cs. And 
the number of pictures in this edit that are images that were like from the sea pile is remarkable. Mm. Like, yeah, you got your like 20 strong, really recognizable pictures. But then because I'm, I'm editing this project 20 years later, it doesn't have to flow as this is the story of Pearl. This is the story of, you know, Rose. Like it, it's more about the story of an era that's gone because that is what it is. It's mm. th that, that the, uh, for people who don't know the project, it's, um, I, in 1999, I, originally, I went down in 1998 to photograph Holocaust survivors in Miami Beach and South Beach. And I was there for about a month and I was doing research and I was looking into different places where Holocaust survivors might congregate. And on my last day I was in Miami, I drove some people home, some, some older women home um, from a, a food program, like at the community center, it was raining and I had a car and I drove them back to where they lived. And they lived in this hotel called Haddon Hall. And I went that night, there was a dance. And I'm like, Oh, my God, this place is remarkable. Why have I not been here? And I was leaving the next day. And I promised myself to come back next year. And I came back next year. And I checked into the hotel. And I lived in the hotel for two months. And that's when the bulk of the work was done. Um, unfortunately, they had already started gentrifying the hotel and renovating. And so the, the lobby wasn't as nearly as bad as it had been. It was so bad. It mm. was so bad. It was good. But the but the stories were there and that's, yeah, it, it, it was basically, and I didn't realize it at the time, but Miami Beach used to be, or specifically South Beach, used to be full primarily of Jewish pensioners and, and people who would spend their winters. Like in its heyday, 20,000 snowbirds would flock mm. and descend upon the beach. And now that's all gone. It's really? all gone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where do they go now then? So they don't go down to, to Miami anymore. Well, they can't. Oh. That way of living is gone. Like yeah. they were, they were staying at hotels where it was like thirty nine dollars a night to stay in these yeah. places. South Beach is now uber fancy and rich right. and expensive. So and yeah, like just, you say, yeah, it's just. I it's don't a, think there is a place for for pensioners if you don't have funds to set aside and you don't mm. own a condo or you you know you can't do this. It's just it's a, it was a simpler time, mm. and it used to be like the verandas were packed with old people just. Hanging out, schmoozing, talking, kibitzing, um, you know, talking about the good old days, whatever. And then there were dances. There was there, the beach was designed for old people, and now that's all gone. Mm. I didn't realize it that I was shooting the last hotel that catered to them. Well, and, I was going to say, did it feel in some way like the end of an era? Did it have that kind of vibe to it, or or you were oblivious? No, right. I was. A, I was. I mean, I knew that they. Were, that, that at one time all the little hotels were full of seniors and I knew that they had all ended up here but I did you know I was 26 I didn't realize what I was photographing at that time mm. I mean I, it was you, just also for me it was my very first project so I was just intent on like you know I, I had been working in New York as um a photo researcher and assistant to photo editors. And in fact, I had just been offered the job of assistant photo editor at Esquire magazine. And I shudder to think, had I taken that job, I'd probably be photo director or something now and, you know, living in a great place in New York instead of my parents' place in Toronto. But, uh, hey, <laughs> you know, sliding doors. Right, exactly. 
then you wouldn't have all that work to your, you know, under your belt, that all that all that great work to to your name. Um, so yeah, there you go. It's funny that you sort of, as a young person though, you genuinely enjoyed their company, didn't you? Because I, I'd be like, I'm not sure if when I was in my twenties, I don't, I don't think I would have wanted to be hanging out with old people. I probably would have been embarrassed by them or sort of uncomfortable. But I don't know. Did you like? I've did you enjoy? Were you close with your grandparents or something when no, you were young? No, no not at all. Interesting. And I think that's part of it. Um, without going into family history, I only met my maternal grandfather when I was 17 and only like three, four times. Mm. Um, my paternal grandmother was, you know, she was a, she herself did not survive the Holocaust. She came to Canada in 1928, but most of her family perished except for a couple of sisters. So she was a very depressed person. Mm. My dad, his dad took off when he was four years old, went out to get some milk, never came home type situation. So I didn't know my grandparents. I knew my grandmother from my father's side, but it was not like a loving relationship. Um, I mean, not to say she didn't love me, but she was, she was incapable, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I do. And so I went down also, these people were my surrogate grandparents. I guess I've always had this need for for grandparents. And I mean, I've always joked, I mean, now I'm all getting closer to 80, but I always joke like, I'm a 80-year-old man living in a 26-year-old body. But like, you know, because I also associate myself as being an old man, not an old woman. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess maybe the, the humor side of things, I don't know. But um, yeah, I've always like, I go to bed 9, 9.30, even now. Like, I was never a, a late-night person. I also – young people make me very uncomfortable. Like, I look at certain pro, uh, photographers and their projects on teens and stuff, and I'm just like, oh, that looks awful. Like, I can't I, – I don't I, – I don't associate with, you know. And I'm just – I guess I've always been a nostalgic individual, mm. even though – I didn't live in that era like that. I, I wish I was like my age during the thirties or actually I would have liked to have been 20 during the thirties. I mean, yeah, I know it was the depression, but they also had swing dancing and big band music. And, mm -mm. you know, I also think that we have so much to learn from old people. Well, that was going to so say, yeah, I was wondering about whether you sort of learned from them because I mean, it's kind of, it's strange to reflect now that I guess most of them must be dead by now. Oh, well, that's the subtitle um, oh, of the book. Everyone in this book is dead. Oh, okay, right. Okay, so that's yeah. really like laying it out, you know, ex yeah. explicitly. But and and there's a sort of poignancy to that. Obviously. Well, no, it's not really the subtitle. I'm joking. <laughs> no, okay, right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been surprised. But your sort of imaginary subtitle. Yeah. So I. I mean, I. I don't know. I suppose maybe that's caused you to reflect on on you know mortality and on on the process of aging. I mean, you know, you know. it's really funny you say that because. Um, at the time, I didn't think about it. I just thought about like, these are, you know, and I wish I had a recorder that I, I, I actually, you know, we're talking about 99, like, there were, you know, I could have had a small cassette recorder, but I didn't tape the people the way I should have. And it would have been great to have had audio, but whatever, it's yeah. past, you can't to go back. But um, I do like, I wasn't always photographing. These people were my friends, like, excuse me, I'd hang out with them. I'd go to the beauty parlor with them. I like, and I didn't always bring my camera. Sometimes it was, you know, just hanging out and talking and listening to stories and whatnot. But 
when I started editing the project, that's when it, it, A, it made me realize that like, oh my God, that was the freest moment in my life. I will never have that freedom again. Yeah. It was like your first love, uh, how easy it was. And, you know, yeah, I was always stressed out, you know, did I get the right pictures? And then I would also, I was shooting Chrome. So I'd go to the lab and I would do like a, a clip and to make sure, like, should you push it? Should you pull it? Is it normal? Like, you know, like kids shooting digital, they don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, you know, there was this um, pressure also. Like, I was using my life savings um, to do this project, paying for the hotel, paying for the film, being for the process. And so it was so important to me that this project worked out that I didn't also, like, you know, you're in a different mindset. But now, 20 years, odd years later, when I look back at it, I didn't know that, you know, when I was going to be working on this book, working on the essay for the book, that I wrote the essay last summer in July, and then my father died early September. He died September 8th. So while I was working on this essay and reflecting, I was also dealing with the fact that now my parents was were the same age as a lot of the people who I photographed, and my father got sick shortly. I mean, my father was sick. He had cancer. He had lung cancer. But that's not what what killed him in the end. I mean, COVID, the the loneliness factor. And all of these things come to your mind. Like, these people are lonely. These people, there was so many parallels. And it's just, and and this is like, you know, when people say, if you have anything to to tell young people, (laughs) I would say just like, appreciate every minute you have. Because like, once you hit a certain age, you will never regain that that sense of like no responsibility mm. again. Yeah, and it feels like I mean I I couldn't agree more, but I also feel like people who are young now have a kind of I think they're weighed down with with the responsibilities of the world and with you know all the shit that's happening, and I'm I kind of feel yes. like I'm. I kind of don't envy them in a way. They no, I, I would not. Don't know if they feel today. like you know. I felt when I was twenty, like yeah, yeah, like you say, there's that that kind of sense of freedom that's just so unbelievably kind of liberating. And well, but they also have all these other factors at play where, like, they have to be popular online. <laughs> they have to. I mean, I, I'm always amazed when I meet someone who's like in their teens or twenties who have opted not to go on social media, and it's like, ooh boy, you are smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like just this idea that like, you know, in addition to all the pressures of life and, and the fact that like, okay, I don't know if I'll ever be able to afford a home. Imagine being going into to university at this age, like in the, in 2021 and knowing that the cost of a house is on average right now in Toronto, the co- the average cost of a house has exceeded $1 million. Mm. I mean, come on. How are you supposed to like function under that pressure? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, there was definitely, you know, being that age in the in the nineties. Um, yeah, yeah, there was a, a freedom that you just didn't realize that you had. And um yeah, so I guess like that has made me really reflect upon my own mortality um looking back at this book. Also it made me feel that, you know, think that um you know the elderly are very much sort of overlooked in our culture aren't they they're they're sort of um they're sort of um, ignored really and and you know you sort of they were a- sacrificed during the pandemic they were well, i mean at the long term care homes they were not 
treated with dignity. No, that that was a particular mess. Yeah, in terms of just the last couple of years, and very you know specific to to the COVID experience, that was a an indicative of of the way in which they're not. And uh, you know, clearly, it's cultural, and you know, there are cultures where old people are. It's the opposite, you know, and they're Revered. treated, yeah, treated yeah. with the most amount of respect. But it's interesting that you you sort of gave them. Well, you know, it's a, it's a tribute to that generation that you know they they're not around to see the, to see the book, but you know, but the rest of us. Well, are. and I'm really sad that my dad's not around to see the yeah. book because he really loved this body of work. He's always said it was my best work, which is like thanks, Dad. Everything else I did after the last <laughs> twenty years was crap, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he meant it as a compliment. Backhanded <laughs> compliment. Yeah. Oh my God! If you knew my father, like he was a very sweet man, but he was also a very critical man. The last thing he said to me before he died was um i was going to the bakery to, it was friday i was going to go if i'm jewish i was going to go pick up a challah for shabbat and i said to him you know i'm going to bagel world i'm going to pick up a challah and he was already really not well he was in the house but he, you know we didn't realize he was dying at the time that the the palliative care doctor came a few hours after this and i'm like i'm going to pick you up some herring because like I was trying to buy foods that he liked, and I yeah, said Jewish food. And I, yeah, and I was like, I'm going to buy you a, a prune homentashen, <laughs> and he says to me, homentash, because in Yid, like a homentashen means multiple cookies, and a, a homentashen for those who don't know, it's like a triangle shaped cookie that you eat during the holiday of Purim. And it's usually filled with either jelly. The best, of course, is prune. You could get poppy seed. That's disgusting. But a singular cookie is a homentash, but a, a multiple cookie is homentashen. So I always said homentashen, to which my father would always say homentash. And so him saying this to me as his last words to me was so bittersweet because on the one hand, he's correcting me and, I'm, you know, very sweet. But on the other hand, it's like, look, dummy, how many times have I told you one cookie is a homentash, two cookies is homentashen. And that's the way... He didn't pass up the, the last opportunity he had to correct you before he shuffled off this mortal call. Yeah, it's... Totally. I guess... A, if you know Jerry, no, so appropriate. Yeah, it doesn't don't sound that dissimilar to my old man, to be honest. Uh, and I, I think that generation in particular, were they had that kind of um, way of doing things. <laughs> yeah. Not currently thought to be a, a sort of... Um, template for good parenting <laughs> no, not at all. i was going to sort of segue into america swings because that sort of that was a project that kind of came from from you being down there in in miami um it's in fact a lot of every your pro project yeah yeah every project is be one project begets the next project mm. if you will yeah again which is a kind of you know the sort of enviable um thing but then you're sort of you're responsible for that. It's not just sheer luck. I think, you know, you're, you're, you're attuned to, to what's going on in your sort of your antenna, your kind of natural tendency to, to find stories, you know, is, is clearly quite attuned, I think. And, and, you know, you sort of see stuff and think, wow, that would be an interesting project. Well, I mean, sometimes I think it was luck. Like when, I, okay, so when I lived in Miami and I was photographing, because I lived in the hotel for a couple of months, then I lived, I took a room out in some guy's apartment, which was really sketchy. I mean, I knew it was sketchy when one day cops showed up looking for MDMA. The guy was a 
was a, a, a big ecstasy. Um, and like, they were like literally in my bedroom. I'm like, how'd you get in? Like it was, yeah. Okay. And then I, I went back to New York, got, I decided I, I was going to move to Miami. So then I moved back down to Miami and I got myself an apartment and I was there for a couple of years. I used to go to a nude beach called Hallover. So the, the joke was get your all over at Hallover. <laughs> um, I don't know why I, I'm not a nudist in the sense like, I'm, I sleep in pajamas. I don't like to be naked. I get cold. But for whatever reason, I enjoy sunbathing nude. Okay, whatever. Mm. So I used to, and I used to sit by myself and I would notice that there were certain people who were always at the beach. And then one day, and this is like 2000, 2001, I noticed somebody had a very large video camera between their legs and they were had it pointing at me because I was sitting by myself and I, I was putting sunscreen on my back and I, I, so I turned around and I'm like, what the fuck? And I was, I should have asked for the tape and I'm just like, get away from here. Stop filming me. So I'm probably somewhere on the internet. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but whatevs. Um, but at that point I decided to make a community of at the beach, like to, to, to make some friends because as a young single woman at a new beach, it's probably better to be sitting with people. And there was a group of people, like it was community, like every holiday, if it was 4th of July or Easter, they would have a potluck and people brought food like this were people were friends. So I used to hang out at the nude beach a lot. I actually photographed at the nude beach because, you know, as a nudist, they allowed me to photograph things. And I also found when people do normal things like floss their teeth after eating naked. It's funny. <laughs> so I always, I'm always looking for the humor in everything, I guess. Um, even sad things. But uh, I was about to move back to New York. And this guy, Ron, who I used to hang out with at the beach, he said to me, and I would hear people talking about like, did you go to that party last night? Or whoa, wasn't that a great party? Are you going to the party? I'm like, they never invite me to their parties. Why not? <laughs> And um, little did I know that they were talking about swinger parties. And Ron is like, listen, I want to go to Trapeze. It's a, it was a club. I want to go to Trapeze this weekend. Would you go with me? You don't have to do anything. I know you're a photographer. I think you'll find it really interesting. I can't go alone. You can't go alone as a single man. Please come with me. Be my key is how we mm, refer to mm. it. And I'm like, okay, sure. Why not? So I went and I mean, you know, there was one point where we're in a, a group sex room. So like, let me paint the picture. First of all, you come, everyone is wearing their sexy, you know, clothes, like the women. And these are all people you would have been in line behind at the supermarket or at the bank a few hours earlier. Only now they're wearing like hoochie mama wear or men in shiny shirts and like the women in those acrylic high heels and whatnot. And they're just regular people, but dressed to the nines, but like sexy nines. And then um, there's a big buffet with meat and potatoes and like, you know, really heavy, heavy foods. <laughs> and 20 minutes later, people are going to, to the back to the group sex room. And to be in that room, you could have a towel on, but you had to be naked. And I was thrilled to take my clothes off because I was so full from eating the meat and potatoes. Like I, I just, you know, like instinctually I would have un been undoing my pants anyway. Um, but, you know, I was there just as a voyeur. And um, we're in the, this one room that's got about six or seven beds all pushed together. And this is the photographer and me. I'm noticing the popcorn ceiling uh, because this was like in an old office 
building, like in this, this um, not an office building, it was a plaza, but like, it was an office, it wasn't a store, it wasn't meant for sex like it so it had like that drop ceiling popcorn ceiling with like fluorescent lighting I mean obviously turned off and then the beds none of the mattresses matched so like one had pink flowers one had stripes one had you know and so you know like in my mind I'm like okay so the the guy who owns this place drive around looking for mattresses at the side of the road and then brought them back to the, cause like, why do they not match? If they bought them all together, they should all be, the, you know, so that's where my brain's going. And my friend Ron is like, he pokes me and he's like pretty hot stuff. Right. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. And I'm just like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um, cause I find sex to be funny also like this and this goes in here. Like, you know, the whole concept of sex is ridiculous. If you think about it. Yeah. 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 Um, if you think about it in that, in a certain, a certain yeah. way. Yeah. So, but, but also, this is like the most uns. I mean, obviously, unsexy. you were being er ironic when you said, "Yeah, this is really hot." Because uh, clearly, I mean, I you just want to. I just want to, you know, run for the nearest. I mean, these are not a, to to be really kind of cruel about it. These are not attractive people. But that's why I think my project is good. Absolutely, I mean, to, no, I to, agree. To, to toot my own horn. No, no, I, I think exactly the what reason I think. Nine. If they were just four. all hot you know, kind of porn it star be people. It would just be boring. Erotic, it would yeah. be erotic. And this is why Tashin published the work. When Diane Hansen, my editor, when I, okay, I'll, I'm flash forward. Uh, I don't want to go there yet. Let me just finish. So like, you know, we spend the night, we're watching this stuff happening. We go, and I didn't do anything. I'm just like, I'm not turned on. Like, it's just, um, we go to a, um, we go to leave and it's like three in the morning. And at this point, the, uh, Dinner buffet has been replaced with a breakfast buffet. And there's a woman standing there stark naked, except for like six inch acrylic heels, taking prune Danish. I kid you not. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to figure out how to photograph this. This is so funny. Mm. And I moved back to New York. I got a boyfriend. I, I mean, I go decades between relationships, but at this point I, I got a boyfriend. And when you're in love and you're in a relationship, you stop photographing like the really good stuff because you want to be with the person you're with. And then we broke up and then I'm like, time to shoot the swingers. Um, so that's how I started in 2003. And I, the first party I went to was an event called swing stock, which was at the time it was held in Wisconsin that it, they moved it to their own place in, in Minnesota. But it was, it had been on this TV show called real sex on HBO. Mm -hmm. And that's how I had heard seen it. And I'm like, okay, if they had allowed um, TV crews to come and film, that means they probably would be okay with a photographer coming. And so I um, wrote to them, or I emailed or I called them and I said, can I come? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. So it was a four-day camping and fornication festival. And I mean, again, I mentioned that I love people doing things that are normal but naked, I find really funny. So like one of my favorite pictures in, from that first shoot was this woman in a sex swing that is being pleasured with a whole group of people watching her and one of the people, and it's in the forest, and one of the people are brushing their teeth. And to me, it's, I call it swing in the forest with toothbrush. And it's the funniest fucking thing. Like it's just so funny seeing people like, I'm watching this woman getting her rocks off while brushing my teeth. I mean, you can't, 
script this. Like, that's why I loved doing documentary work because the truth, like truth is stranger than fiction. Mm. It was just so funny. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I had been photographing, I did that project shot. I did that shoot. I had only photographed like five or six places and, um, a friend of mine, sorry. No, sorry. I'm just kind of got so many, uh, questions, but. Well, I was going to tell you how I brought it to Tasha. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. So George Pitts, who used to be the photo director of Vibe and a photographer in his own right, and he died a few years ago and is sadly missed because he was really one of the good guys in the photo industry. Um, he's like, Naomi, you really need to take this work to Tasha. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. He goes, email, Di- you know, call Diane Hansen. Tell her I told you that, you know, because they knew each other. So I, I was in L.A. It was my first time in L.A. This was, I guess, 2005. And I called up Diane and, you know, she, those days, you know, she, she, she took the call. And I'm like, hi, I'm doing this project. I'd really love to show you the work. I'm in LA. She goes, we have a submissions process. Go on the website, look at the, the submissions process. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, George Pitts had told me to call you. And she's like, okay, fine. George told you to call. I'll listen to you. What's your project about? At the time, I didn't think it was just going to be about swingers. I was I was like, sex in suburbia. I've been photographing these um, swingers parties. And she's like, could you be here at two o'clock? So I go in and I've got my box, like my Kodak box that's kind of dog-eared and um, with like 20 prints in it, like eight or 10 prints. And I, I go and I show her the work. And it's, I think it's all from America, uh, sorry, from um, this uh, campground, the, the swing stock. Maybe I had also photographed at that point a uh, in Niagara Falls at a, a Halloween party. Oh, no, no, it was a, a Valentine's party in Minneapolis. But um, yeah, they're all very big on holidays, the swingers. Um, and she said, could you leave these here so I could show them to Benedict? And I'm like, well, let me put them in a nicer box. This is, you know, this is terrible. She goes, no, 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 step on the box, make it worse. Benedict wants to feel like he discovered diamonds in the rough. Right. And if you show the work, like he will not look at book dummies. He does not want to be told how to, to show the work. He just wants to see the prints. And I'm like, all right, sure. And that's how it all kind of happened. I mean, there was different, I'm not going to go through everything with you, but um, you know, Diane championed my project to Benedict. And what he really liked about it was Diane, this is what she told me. He's like, Diane, they're all happy. They're all smiling. They're all having a good time. And I think when you look at erotica and you look at, and I wouldn't call my work erotica. My work is documentary. But when you look at erotica, this is like 3% of the world's population are that hot. Like who's that? Who, who has bodies like that? And then also, why do they always look pained? They're always like got this like serious look. Sex isn't supposed to be serious. I mean, sex is fun. Yeah. Sex is funny. Like I said, things go in places that they shouldn't or they should. I don't know. Um, sounds and smells, like all sorts of things happen while we're having sex. And so... Shouldn't we be celebrating that as opposed to making it this like, you know, serious business? Mm. And that's how it all happened. And then getting back to the cloud over my head, I mean, wonderful news. Richard Prince discovered me. He wanted to, and Diane asked if he would do an interview. And then they decided to make the book a limited edition, you know, clamshell box, fancy book. 
I'm an unknown. It was a stupid idea to make a limited edition book with an unknown artist, but Richard Prince was uh, tied to the project. Okay. And the day the book came out, the $500 copy of this book and then a thousand if it came with a print, the day it came out was the day of the Lehman Brothers mortgage crisis. Oh, God, your timing. The day, the day. And I have an exhibition at M&B in L.A., Phillips to Puri in New York, Bopka's, Bopka's sold, no, one print sold at M&B. No one gave a shit about fat people in America having sex. They were losing their shirts. They're, mm. Like, you know, and so had it come out three months earlier, who knows? Maybe I would have been the toast of the town yeah, at yeah. this point. Well, you, you said that, you know, it, it actually actively hurt your career, but I don't know if that was more yes. about, can you talk about that a little bit? How, why is that? I don't know why I would have thought that people would be like, wow, this is a woman who can get herself into any situation. Like she's photographing swingers who do not allow people to photograph at it. But instead, people assumed I was a swinger. Right. And they, I mean. Or that, you know, in some, in some way that even if they didn't, other people might assume that. Advertising agencies, like I was told well, you have this body of work, clients. Now, had I been a man, I think would have been a completely different story. There's a very successful commercial photographer here in Toronto who made, quote unquote, swinger pictures. He hired models to make, but they're all fucking tens and sexy and they're, you know, but shaved, you know what, um, mm. Topless, like, I mean, these were, it was all simulated. It wasn't real, but made this whole series. And what does he get? He gets a job doing the, the, the campaign for Canada Post, for the government. So if I was a man, I think it would have been completely different than the mm. fact that I'm this woman. And, yeah. yeah. And also there was this the kind of double standard of, you know, they're not hot people, they're normal people. Yeah. And, and so, you know. I hold a, I hold it a wasn't mirror a pornified version. Yes. It was just real, you know, people kind of watching. I was once talking to Howard Bernstein, um, who was a really big rep in New York. I, um, he had an agency, Bernstein Andrew. He was, you know, he wanted to rep me. And he said, Naomi, could you please do what you do, but with normal people, like good looking people? And I said, no, I can't, Howard, because I don't care about those people. Am I stubborn? Uh, yeah, I guess I was stupid. I guess I was stupid to do that because maybe I could have just done it and then I would be getting big Coca-Cola campaigns maybe. But that's not why I got into photography. And I, in retrospect, it was probably foolish. But also, like, you know, when you're funding all of your work and you're funding everything – you only have so much bandwidth and so much money to, to do tests. And um, yeah, of course. anyway, yeah, I can't reverse time. So that's it. What it is. Maybe I'm, I'll be the yayoi <laughs> and mm. get discovered now. Well, but also like you said, I mean, you know, that, that book may have, you know, you know, it, these things kind of come in and out of fashion and that book may um, have its time, you know, oh, I think it will. you know, but not necessarily now or at the time it was, produced but uh, well, that's the great thing about a book you know it's it remains in the world 
it was kind of just before Facebook became, like it was 2008 the book came out. So it was just before Facebook was really big. It was just before there were all these blogs and podcasts and what have you. So I think it, and then also the, the whole world was in a recession. I think it went under the radar. I bought a bunch of copies of the trade edition. They're in my closet. I'm waiting for people to want them again. Call me. I'll mm. make you a good deal. <laughs> um, but like, imagine I was in Barcelona, I guess it was... 20, what year would it have been? 2012, 2013. I was going to Arles and I was in, um, but I was in Barcelona and I was um, in a bookshop. It was that, that sold mainly remainders books. So like really cheap books. And they had a couple of copies of America Swings. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. I could take some down to Arles with me. And I was like, how many of these do you have? And he's like, how many do you want? And I'm like, well, what's, what do you mean? How many? And he goes, I have boxes of them down in the basement. They were selling them for five euro. And so, oh, no. uh, I mean, like when, when that happens, your heart just is like, oh, crushed. And I bought a few mm. copies and to give to people. But like, you know, I know that many, many, many copies of this book was destroyed. <laughs> I can say that with good faith and with a laugh. But I, I do think it will have a second life. I mean, when I tried to shop that book around, to different publishers, no one wanted to look at it. It was like nowadays you can buy all sorts of like publishers like RVB do wonderful books that have sexy topics and same with morale. And, but it just was, I'm always off. My timing is always off. I'm always one day and a dollar short. Well, EUSA came out of, of that. Again, it was a sort of another example of one thing coming out of another. But um, I don't know whether your timing was off with that one. I know you, you funded it successfully on Kickstarter. That's one thing. And you made a brilliant um, video to sort of promote it, a brilliant Kickstarter Thank video. Thank looked like you'd gone for a big budget on that. Um, Nothing. I was all favors. I did not right. pay anybody. Oh, wow. Because it looks really, yeah. yeah, you did it. It went well. Green screen. I, I had a really um, wonderful woman, Sabrina DeLuca, who is a, um, she just moved to Los Angeles, actually, but she was here in Toronto. And she was a really young and eager art producer who's like, I have so many people to call in favors. Let me help you make this. So like th from the studio, the only thing I paid for was the chicken I eat in the video. Um, lunch, I got everyone lunch, which I think was pizza. And um, I paid the hair and makeup person because she was not, you know, she did not get a favor called in. But like the editing, sound editing, the editor, everyone did it for free. Mm, so it's interesting because some people are like, I'm not sponsoring this girl. She clearly has money if she made this video. Yeah. Yeah, you can't win really in a way. But it, it, you know, <laughs> they always say, you know, you're doing a good video is an important part of the Kickstarter process you know that's the one so of the things people say yeah it well it looked like so you're having fun dressing yeah. up dressing up in various national costumes well the, the project is really about the sort of homogenate homogen oh, i knew i was gonna struggle with homogenization. that homogenization thank you the homogenization of you know the, the planet really the global yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah. and so it was a, i mean it's a very neat idea in a way one of those oh why didn't i think of that kind of ideas um but you're the one who thought of it which is you know, places in the States which have got a kind of European theme and then places in Europe which have, have got the, the American theme, like, you know, the kind of cowboy Wild West, um, you know, that's obviously a, a popular one. But um, Especially in Germany, they love right. that Karl May, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, who is the 
Karl May was a German yeah, writer cool. in the 1880s, I believe. And he wrote the first of the, the, it was a series of books. It was kind of like the Hardy Boys, but with cowboys and Indians. And he wrote the first book from jail, I believe. Right. Um, I mean, there's rumor that he plagiarized it from someone else. But, well, yeah. Mm. He had never set foot in America, but he wrote these stories of the Wild West in America um, from the eyes of Winnetou, this native man and um his trusty sidekick uh shuttlecock i think was his name mm-hmm. or shutterhand or i don't know um but yeah so like i went to one of the um in the rajibu i'm totally butchering the name um is where he was from and so they have a big uh carl mai festival every year and what's interesting fun fact is like during world war ii when so many books were being burned Hitler loved the Winnetou series so much that he said, spare it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why there's this fascination with native people in Europe, specifically Eastern Europe, like in Germany and Poland Mm. and Czech Republic. It's because of, um, you know, so many children growing up reading and seeing the movies and, and, and yeah. Um, Well, we all did, you know, in a way. And, um, I guess, you know, one of the things that sort of comes to mind in looking at that project is, is you know, are people dressing up in, you know, Native American costumes and, and, um, and you know, as cowboys and, and, and all sorts of other sort of... Cultural appropriation much? Yeah, and, um, <laughs> you know, you probably think, I don't know if you... Can you still do that now? And, and I was wondering about where you... And I kind of hesitate to even get into this because it's yeah. such a political kind of... Hot, to- hot I button think topic, it but was, yeah, it was so innocent. Like, of I mean, course, yeah. I'm not defending. Like, okay, I think this. I also started photographing this in 2010, I believe. Oh no, the first place I went was in two was in 2008. I can't remember. It seemed brain fog. Um, I when they when I started this project, I think part of it was that. Um, There was not as much, okay, so like right now, what's happening in Canada where we're discovering so many um, bodies of the children that were, the native children that had been taken away from their parents and put in residential schools, it's finally coming to light, like, you know, we knew some stuff, but it's, it's really coming to light globally that of what the atrocities were done to the Native Americans, both in Canada and America, but when I would say this, when I would meet Germans who were like, you know, they'd say, I wish I was Indian. I wish I was born Indian. And I'm like, are you aware of like, you know, it's not just dressing up in costumes and putting feathers on. Did you, do you know what a residential school is? No one knew what I was talking about. The Indian, the, the native that they were referring to was from this book. That was not true. And so it was a fantasy and their, their heart was in the right place, but they just, didn't have any actual knowledge about what the truth of being first nations in, in North America was. So while they, they really were trying to be respectful, they didn't like not knowing, not, not doing the proper research. Now on the flip side, when I went, the very first place I went was in um, Sweden and there were a lot of people there that were also dressing up as um, civil war, like both the North and the South and, um, uh, of, of, of the American Civil War, I should say. 
And I mean, so many of these people, I mean, in Sweden, they speak English, but because uh, they have really great education system, but so many of the people I would find when I was working on this project in Europe didn't speak a lick of English, but they had knowledge of like, American Civil War, they were fascinated by it. And um, with all of these costumes and stuff, also, they weren't bought from stores, they were handmade, mm -hmm. and they would do it like they didn't, they didn't want to use sewing machines, because they would be there at that period of time they would create they would make the clothes and they would camp they like that was what the, that was why this project was like the last project i did of documentary style because no one had cell phones even though cell phones existed they kept them in their cars which was wonderful because they were like we are living as though we're in the 1800s so right, we yeah, can't yeah. have technology which made for me really good pictures because people were actually doing things and were being natural about it I, although like when I went to events here in America that was different, but they were like dressed in, um, mm. let's say Dutch costumes and, but it was different. So like in so, Europe, it was, I'm oh, sorry. No, no, it's just going to sort of, you know, sort of go a bit further into this, this idea of like, so if, if a, if a Dutch, if an American dresses as a Dutch person, is that cultural appropriation? Or if, if, no, if, if, because if an, it was their culture, it was their heritage. So the people, okay. So this is the interesting thing in America. Okay, Oktoberfest is free game. Everyone likes beer, everyone, you know. But, like, it, people who actually dress up for Oktoberfest tend to be of German heritage. And so most of these events are taking place in towns where, let's say, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, when people came to America, they would reside the, the German. So the, so the majority of the people in that town would have been, like, New Braunfels, Texas. The majority of the people there are of German heritage. Um, Orange City, Iowa, the majority of the people there are of Dutch heritage. So they can go trace back through their lineage. So for them, and, and in fact, at the parade that they did in um, Orange City, Iowa, the Dutch parade during the, this thing called Dutch Days, they would march or, or, or parade in um, following someone who held a sign from of the region. And so they would wear the costume from the region they their family actually came from. So they were very, for the American side, disregard, um, whatchamacallit, uh, like Las Vegas, where I also went because there's like, of course, the Venetian and you've got gondoliers and you've got mm. Paris, uh, the Paris Paris Hotel and stuff. For the most part, the people in America are celebrating their heritage and where their ancestors came from in Europe to America. Whereas in the, the flip side is more um, this fascination with America, but more or less America of days gone by, like, um, you know, the, the pioneer days, um, the American Civil War. I mean, like, what was really uncomfortable was seeing people in, like, uh, I think I went to Slovakia. Did I go to Slovakia? I think so. I can't remember. Um, one of the places where, where they had, like... Um, uh, confederate flags and it's like you have no idea what this flag means you're just displaying it because to you it means america of a certain period but you don't know the implications of what this flag is mm. and how hurtful it is um, yeah, you can you can and also you can you can sort of hardly in a way blame them because there's plenty of americans who are still you know happy to 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 fly that flag and you know we know what we know what our, what our a political you know hot potato that has been very very recently so um yeah as someone who's living in like you say slovakia yeah how would they 
even really understand the nuances of of all that as well it's kind of understandable in a way I did not go to Slovakia. I don't know oh, why. It yeah. was pro- the Czech Republic. I okay. don't know why Slovakia came to my mind. I've never been there. So I don't know. Terrible. Sorry, Slovakia. I did not mean to throw you under the bus. <laughs> it doesn't matter in a way because, like you say, it's really all just It's all about, the same. It's all basically, yeah, no, we're joking, people, for God's it's sake. Melting, well, but that's the point of the project. And, like, okay, I appreciate that you recognize um, what I was trying to say, that this is a – comment a commentary on globalization and that like within a hundred years we are not going to have any real distinct differences i remember going to europe in the 90s or early 2000s and i'd be in france and i'd buy a handbag or something and it would be very exciting because i would be the only person in toronto with that that thing now with the internet you can have anything anywhere anytime you want Mm. and the things that made us different don't exist anymore we all talk on iphones we all wear levi's we all wear converse doesn't matter if you're in shanghai budapest new york we all look the same and that is a real sad loss i think like i don't believe in in having um you know i don't want to sound like you know uh that we should have these cultural borders but at the same time there's something exciting about go- like why did we well, love Japan so much when we went there? Yeah, because yeah, there were because these things that course, made them unique. Vive la défense, you know, like it's about uh, uh, celebrating those differences. You know, yeah. I mean, if if, if, if Japan was just the same as going to you know France, then or you know was the same as me going from London to to Manchester, what would be the? There'd be no fun going there. The whole point is that it's massively different culturally, right? However, capitalism wants us all to be the same so they can sell, sell us shit. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sell us stuff. No matter where we live, we all want the same things. Mm. And that's the sadness of, of globalization. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm very much aware of, of your time. and um, I have nothing going on. <laughs> you, I, I mean, you're the one that's got the beautiful weather. But, yeah. No, this has been I'm really usually. lovely. And I mean, I'm totally happy to talk more. I feel like I've kind of gone on some really weird No, no, not and, at all. No, you haven't. Um, just t- tell me a little bit about what you're up to because you have moved uh, things on a little bit and you're doing this MFA. So just tell us what you're up to now. Yeah, so having Hall, I mean, trying to promote the shit out of that and try to get that work out there. I mean, I'd like to get some exhibitions and also um, get, I have vintage prints that I'd like to get into some collections out there. But um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not really focusing on photography, like making pictures at school. I'm more interested in um, creating more site-specific works and originally when I I thought about what I was going to do for um, my thesis, I was like, well, I'm kind of like that at that stage of life where, you know, I'm the invisible woman, if you will. And, uh, you know, we're here, but we're not here. Like, you know, if I go to a bar and a 20 year old is at the bar and I've got a 50 in my hand and she's got a cute smile, they're going to serve her first. Um, But then I was like, you know, that was pre-dad dying and then I was like maybe I should do something about caregiving because this is something that a lot of us my generation especially will have to go through and um especially like it's interesting there's so many books written about so you're having a baby you're expecting a baby you know 
And there's so much attention and positive attention put on bringing life into the world and very little written or mentioned about death. And I was thinking of like following kind of like the Dr. Spock baby book, but being like reversing it and being like, so congratulations, you've got a father in a diaper. Um, you know, like the idea of, of aging, because we all are going to go there. And I still want to do something like with the, the, the baby book idea, but I have to be realistic as to what I can accomplish in the next six months or so before um, my exhibition has to go up. So I am focusing maybe still a little bit about caregiving, definitely about the empathy of how to deal with someone or, or not how not to behave when someone is in mourning and in grief. Um, like, you know, it's very common for people to be like, let me know if there's something I can do for you. And it's like, wait, why not just do something for someone? Why ask them? Let me know if there's something I could do for you. Cause I can't barely figure out what I'm going to have for breakfast or get dressed in the morning. And you're now putting the onus on me. I think art's supposed to show people, educate people in a hopefully humorous or, or um, evocative way. And so I'm focusing on death, more or less. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, but my neighbor loaned, a, um, loaned me um, like a baby camp that you could watch on an app on your phone. And because my dad was having like, you know, really, he was really agitated the last week he was here. He was, we brought him home from the hospital and he was here in the house. And so I set up the camera and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was filming his last days and I had the footage. I wasn't actually there. The PSW um, came, like we, we needed to sleep. My dad died at one forty-nine in the morning and she came to get me from bed to be there for his last breath. And, um, but I missed it. Uh, but I have it on video and um my dad really loved movies he he watched old movies a lot and one of the things that i noticed was happening um while i was there with my dad those last few days of him just being there but not being there and just waiting for that last breath um and and the, the moment of death was how in movies um I'll wait for your siren. <laughs> Somewhat appropriate. Perfect timing. Um, like you think about movies like Citizen Kane where Orson Welles is on his deathbed and he's like Rosebud and drops the, the globe or, or these movies like Terms of Endearment or just these, these like these big Hollywood blockbusters where death is kind of like, you know, someone says something to the other person and like, go on, I can't bear the thought of you not living without me or, you know, please don't die. And it's these like tear jerkers and you're, uh, you're crying and you're like, that's not what happens. No one has those profound last thoughts and conversations. That's not the accurate death. And so I'm hoping to splice video pieces of like those moments with the real moment of my dad and um, ta-da, it's a real Hollywood ending. Right. Okay. Well, this just seems to be kind of, yeah, the, the theme for you is this kind of insistence on um, presenting the real world in a way or with a kind of uh, unvarnished reality of, of, of life rather than the sort of airbrushed version. Well, but it's also like, again, I'm always trying to like do something with a, a certain element of humor. Um, I don't know. It's just who I am, even though if it's not like slapstick you know, hit you on the head comedy. Mm. Um, 
I think there's, I don't want to offend anyone. And I don't like, I, I'm more into clever. It doesn't have to be like the punchline doesn't have to be big. It could just be, you know, subtle. Mm. I, I like the subtlety of things. Well, look, that's fair. I, I, I look forward to, you know, seeing whatever you are intending to produce in the future. And um, best of luck with Haddon Hall, which is published by Void. Uh, yes. I think which is... and it was also the winner of the uh, yeah. who, um, book people you got dummies enter contest because mm. it's a really wonderful way to potentially get your book published yeah. I mean everyone involved um, Ufuk Sahin from um, Mas Matba he published the book and, but he brought Void on so it's a co-publish oh, so it's, and... a, yeah, it's a joint effort yeah mm-hmm. It's been really enjoyable to, to talk to you, Naomi. Thank you so much for, for joining Thank me you. and for giving me your time. Appreciate it. It's been really interesting. It's nice to be drinking tea not alone. <laughs> yeah.